thank you and congratulations for making it to church on daylight saving time. So you are the real elect, the true people of God, who, despite that lost hour, made the mile or 50 feet to church. Thank you. So, I'm excited to be back after a really refreshing time down in Los Angeles for a pastor's conference. And uh, I'm going to try to channel that excitement through the preached word this morning. So please take the Bible of the the Word of God and and find Mark 3. Currently, we are in an expository series I've entitled called What to Live For. Did you know the Bible tells you what to live for? And that mission in life doesn't expire. There's no such thing in the Bible as retirement. There's no such thing in the church as index. That's a military term for end of exercise. As long as we have breath, as long as there is blood flowing through your veins, as long as your heart is pumping, you have the responsibility, the weighty responsibility, to go out and preach the gospel. That's what you should be living for. As we see here in this passage, these 12 normal, average, ordinary fishermen were selected, handpicked by Christ to carry his message to the world, and that message would be communicated from them to average Christians like you and me. So we have a tremendous weight. You have a tremendous weight on your shoulders to carry. You are carrying the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we all have the tremendous responsibility to communicate that. It's no small task. It's nothing to take lightly. It's nothing to do when we have free time. It's nothing to do when it's convenient. It's the primary thing. And we, this church, would do well to get back to that basic tent of our faith. So, I hope you're at Mark 3. Let's, let's revisit these words of Mark 3. The good thing about going slow through a passage is that you have more time to to chew on it, right? You have more time to let it sink in. And I don't know about you, but the more I read something, the more clear it becomes, right? So let's let's dig back in, find our way to Mark 3. I will read verses 13 through 19. This is God's holy inspired word. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they could be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. 
And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And Philip, excuse me, and Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, Father, I pray, I beg you to quicken anyone here who may not understand these things. Give them insight. Give them new revelation from your word. Those whom are discouraged, those whom have grown cold and lukewarm, Father, rekindle our passion to do what you've called us to do. Amen. So just to review briefly, the two main points of this passage are clear, right? In verse 13, Jesus says that he summoned them. That is a word that literally means to call out. So Jesus verbally, authoritatively, called out, spoke to these men to come to him, to be confronted. That was their calling. Their calling to preach the gospel. The second point is in verse 14, the second main point. It says that Jesus appointed them. The Greek word there literally is to make. Jesus made them. What did he make them into? The text tells us later he made them into apostles. They weren't born apostles. They didn't naturally become apostles. Jesus Christ himself formed them into apostles. He morphed them into his servants. He transformed them into his ambassadors. Why? The text says so that they, number one, could be with him, spend time with him, learn from him, become a disciple. Then, so that they could preach. So he could send them out to preach. Thirdly, Jesus called and commissioned them to have authority to cast out demons. And that was necessary to authenticate the message because it was new. So, just, just to kind of get back to the main gist, the main proposition here, the main takeaway, all followers of Jesus Christ are called to preach. You know, we, we can tie this in with the Great Commission, Right? I just heard a masterful exposition of the Great Commission at Shepherd's Conference, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. So as evangelical, baptistic believers, we hear the, the Great Commission ad nauseum, don't we? Go and make disciples. That's our main mission. And that's, that's, right, that's rightfully so. But here we also see another version of the Great Commission. You're going to spend time with Christ in His Word. You're not going to cast out demons, but you are going to preach. You must preach. And again, to be clear, for those of you who may may not have been here or forgot, 
when I, when I say preach in this context, I'm not talking about standing in a pulpit like I am right now and preaching. Very few are called to do that. There's a lot of people doing it that shouldn't. And there's a lot of people that are doing it that are going to have a rude awakening on Judgment Day because of James 3.1. So when I say preach in this context, in this series, I'm just talking about your personal evangelism. I'm talking about speaking, proclaiming, heralding the gospel to those around you. That's what you should be living for. As a Christian, we know the answer to the age-old existential questions like, what's my purpose on earth? What am I here for? What's the point? It's so simple. But maybe we don't like the answer. So we may find ourselves wrestling with those questions once in a while. It's so simple and straightforward. Our purpose is to make disciples, to preach, to labor in the gospel ministry until that appointed day of your death. So if you identify as a Christian, brothers and sisters, I have to tell you the truth and remind you that our purpose in life here is not to be happy. Our purpose in life here is not to get rich, to raise, even to raise a family. And certainly it's not to be a consumer of ministry. It's to be a doer of ministry. That's the model that the twelve left for us. They were called and commissioned to preach the gospel, and so were we. So these twelve, not only can we learn much from their calling and commission, but we can learn much from who they were. One of my favorite preachers, as I said, I think last time I preached, Steve Lawson, he preached hour, uh, an, an, um, an hour-long sermon on each, each apostle. <laughs> so I'm not that skilled, and I don't know if I could keep your attention for 12 hours um, speaking about these 12 men. So what I've done here is I've divided this group of 12 into three distinct groups. Three subgroups of four. And these are arranged in decreasing intimacy with Christ. The first group comprised of two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. The second group, which is what we'll consider today, included Philip, Nathaniel, Matthew, and Thomas. And the second group consisted of James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas. I'm almost tempted to preach a... a, a an individual message on Judas, just because of who he was, but I haven't decided that yet. Now, the order of these names from uh, in each of the synoptics might uh, differ slightly, but they always have the same leader who is listed first in each group. Peter heads up group one, Philip two, and James, the son of Alphaeus, group three. These men, these 12 men, they were elected to salvation and then they were elected for service. And as we go through these men, remember what J.C. Ryle said. These apostles were intended to be patterns and models for all ministers. Who in this room is a minister? 
everybody. You might not be paid. You might not have the blessing and the privilege of making your living in gospel ministry like me. But you're still a minister. You're a servant of Christ. And so we need to get back to that basic fundamental truth. I ended the message three weeks ago with a brief look at the second group of men. Today, let's see what we can learn from the third group. The first man in the second, excuse me, second group, the first man in the second group is Philip. Look at your Bible. He's number five on the list. He is the first man in the second subgroup, which means he is what? The leader of the second group. After choosing Peter, Andrew, and John, Jesus located and called Philip. Philip is a native of the same village that Peter is from. So they knew each other, perhaps worked together. One thing you need to know here right off the bat is that this this Philip should not be confused with Philip the deacon in Acts 6. Remember that Philip? The Philip who led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ? Not the same Philip here. This Philip is the chosen apostle. His name is interesting. It means lover of horses, which has absolutely nothing to do with his ministry or his personality. That was his Greek name given. But, like the other men, he was a fisherman. That's really all we can know about his, his life. But we can learn something about his personality, his character. I'll put it in the words of John MacArthur. He said, quote, Piercing together all that the Apostle John records about him, It seems that Philip was a classic, quote-unquote, process person. He was the facts and figures guy, a by-the-book, practical, non-forward-thinking type of person. He was the kind who tends to be the corporate killjoy, the pessimistic, narrowly-minded, sometimes missing the big picture, often obsessed with identifying reasons things can't be done, rather than finding ways to get them done. He was predisposed to be a pragmatist, a cynic, and a defeatist, end quote. In other words, Philip would have been a bad soldier. (laughs) In the army, they train you from day one that if you have a problem, you need to figure it out. Adapt and overcome, they say. Don't freak out and give up. Where there's a will, there's a way. But that wasn't Philip. And if we go to John 6, you can see why. Go ahead and turn there. John 6. The apostle of love recorded an event where Jesus fed a massive crowd. John 6 verse 10 says the crowd consists of about 5,000 men. And if we add women and children into that mix, the crowd could have easily been ten to 20,000. 
So with that in mind, listen to what Jesus does first as he sees this large, hungry crowd. In verse 5, Jesus turns to Philip and asks, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? The next verse says that Jesus posed that question to test Philip. Now that question, number one, implies that Philip was in charge of logistics. And that suited his personality. Look at how he responded. In verse 7 he answered, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. For everyone even to receive a little. In other words, he was saying, Lord, there's no way we can feed these people. He looked at the numbers and immediately told God, I don't think we can do that. But was he wrong to be so pessimistic? Was he wrong to feel overwhelmed by the impossible? Wasn't he wrong to lapse into materialistic thinking in the presence of Christ? Wasn't he wrong to respond with numbers rather than faith in the Lord? Judging from that single account, it's fair to say that Philip didn't sound like the kind of man that we would want to emulate, does it? At least not that part of it. But Christ still called and commissioned him, didn't he? If God could take a man like Philip and transform him, he can use you. So if you're a cynic or a pessimist, or if you're that rigid type of by-the-book, facts-and-figures kind of person, there's hope for you just like there was hope for Philip. With God's, God, with God's help, you, you can take your eyes off of the natural. And you can put your eyes on the spiritual. Spiritually speaking, all things are possible with God. We can look at this liberal, very dark, world and we don't have to think how are those how are those people going to come to Christ how are those people going to break away from their their life of sin and bondage we can look at how the world is seems the world seems to be getting worse and worse. And we could still conduct our ministries knowing that Christ has given us a mission that cannot fail. Cannot fail. Christ is building His church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? He is with us to the end of the age. So we can do our job knowing that there will be fruit.
We don't have to throw our hands up, lock ourselves in our houses, and say, forget it, it's impossible. Christ is sovereign. Christ has his sheep out there. And we can trust him when he says, my sheep know me, and they hear my voice. And I need to hear this myself, because it's hard for me to live here. This is a hard town to live in. I've, I've witnessed to my neighbors. Maybe you have. There are people in this town that don't like me. And you might know who they are. So it's, it's hard to live here. It's hard to live here in a consumeristic age where they go down to, to uh, what's that big church with, with the playland inside? Timberlake. They go to Timberlake. They go to SVA because they have other things to do. You know, and Christians have freedom to go to whatever church they want. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dogging that. But it's, it, it, it's hard to see people flock to that kind of church or people just give me the cold shoulder. It's hard. I, I want to look at what's natural, like, like, like Philip, right? And say, what can be done? Can I do anything? And the answer is I can't. But Christ can. Christ, Christ's message through me can. And it might not be what I want. It might not be what you want. But that's not what we're responsible to do. We are not responsible, like Philip, to look out, see the physical reality and say, Lord, I don't think we can do that. You've sent me to this town, but I don't think I can do that. I've had to repent. And brothers and sisters, some of you in this room need to repent too. You need to renew your zeal for this church, for the gospel ministry in our community, and help me. Help us. Help each other. Spread the gospel in our community for the glory of God and for the long-term survival of this lighthouse. The sixth man called and commissioned to preach the gospel is Bartholomew. He is the second man in the second subgroup. In the Gospel of John, Bartholomew is always called Nathaniel. So, Nathaniel, Bartholomew, they're the same man. Bartholomew is a Hebrew name, Hebrew surname, meaning son of Ptolemy. Nathaniel means God is given. So he is Nathaniel or Bartholomew, son of Ptolemy, or Nathaniel Bartholomew. Just like Peter and Andrew are always listed together, and just like James and John are always listed together, Nathaniel is always listed with Philip. So Philip and Nathaniel were like BFF. That means best friend forever, if you don't know those cool acronyms. We always find these two men side by side. They weren't brothers, but they were spiritual brothers. They were close friends. And this is noteworthy because Nathaniel was brought to Jesus by Philip. The brief description of how Nathaniel came to Jesus 
provides some insight into the kind of man he was. And from that, we can learn something here. So if you're still in John, flip over to John 1. Flip over to John 1. In John 1, we read about the ministry of John the Baptist, followed by Jesus' call to discipleship. In John 1.41, Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. In verse 43, Jesus calls Philip. You guys track with me so far? Then in verse 45, we find Nathaniel's name for the first time ever. Notice that what Philip says to Nathaniel. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, what does that statement imply? It implies that Philip and Nathaniel knew the Bible. That they knew the Old Testament. They knew the qualifications for the Messiah. In other words, they were students of the word. You'll observe that Philip didn't go to Nathaniel and say, Friend, I have found a man who has a wonderful plan for your life. He didn't go to Nathaniel and say, Friend, I have found the one who can solve all your problems. He didn't say, Brother, I found a man who will make your life full of happiness and joy and peace and contentment. Now, as a side note, the blessing of being in Christ produces that, right? But that's not why Jesus came, right? He came to die for sin. So, rather, rather than bringing that kind of message to Nathaniel, Philip knew that Nathaniel only cared about the biblically prophesied Messiah. Not a genie to make everyone's life better. But though they knew a little scripture, which is a good thing, right? Which, by the way, do you know what scripture says about the next coming of Christ? We'll get to that later. Nathaniel had his quirks, right? Just like, just like everybody, just like all of us, just like the other uh, disciples. Look how Nathaniel responded in John 1.46. You've heard this before. Could anything good, what, come out of Nazareth? Wow. What a punk. You know what that reveals? Nathaniel was a racist. He was prejudiced. And I don't use this term loosely because it's become skewed, but he was, in all true sense of the word, a bigot. To him, anybody from Nazareth was lower than low. They were unworthy of respect. They were full of evil simply for being affiliated with the rough town of Nazareth. Its culture was largely unrefined, uneducated, so the Galileans looked down on them. 
Now, this, this prejudice is similar to the kind of national pride we as Americans may struggle with as we witness primitive cultures and archaic infrastructures of third world countries. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe more than anyone in this room, I can relate to that, right? I've been to Iraq, where the streets are literally filled with garbage and human feces. Buildings reduced to rubble on every corner. Dead men laying in the street. Gunfire, mortars going off at all hours of the day. Loud Muslim chants coming from the speakers across the city. Every time I hear somebody say they're from Iraq, I'm tempted to say, Really? How'd you get over here? But that's wrong. That's sin. It was sin for Nathaniel to think that way. On this side of the cross, we all know that God is in the business of taking flawed men and women from all corners of the earth. Doesn't matter what race, religion, culture you're from, right? It doesn't matter who they are. So we need to be careful that we're not blinded by the same type of prejudice that Nathaniel had. We need to learn from Nathaniel, the sixth apostle. We need to learn from the good thing that he was known for was being a student of the Old Testament. But we also need to see his, 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 his natural disposition towards prejudice. And I'm encouraged because Christ was gracious with him, right? Even after responding in such a dumb way, Christ went to him and he said what? A true Israelite. Even though he had that racist quirk, he was still a faithful Jew in a spiritual sense. Not in a physical sense. And then Nathaniel professed faith in Christ as John revealed. So, I love, I love this study because time and time again, we, we have... We have 12 different lessons, 12 different good lessons, and then 12 bad lessons, right, from these men. So, so this is why it's good to take a little time and, and just have a discussion about all these men individually. So, in one way, be like Nathaniel. Know God's Word. Have you read Revelation? Or do you have a picture of Jesus that's painted on positive encouraging Caleb? Christ is not the meek and mild, lowly servants anymore. He is coming back to judge on a white horse, dealing out retribution to those who do not believe. Hold, oh, so brothers and sisters, make yourself ready. It could come at any moment. Make yourself ready. 
be aware of any type of natural prejudice that you might have. The seventh man called and commissioned to preach the gospel is Matthew. Matthew is the third man in the second subgroup. Here we are introduced to Matthew, or Levi, the son of Alphaeus, same man, back in Mark 2. So I, I won't spend a lot of time on him because um, a few, I don't know, a month or two few ago, I don't, can't remember, but you know, when in Mark 2, Jesus calls Matthew, and then the Pharisees get mad at Jesus because what? He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. So if you haven't heard that message, go back and listen to that. But what I, I do want to um, just touch on who he was because it's important. And, and it sheds more light on the significance of Matthew's election for apostleship. You remember that he was a tax collector, which was a job that the average Jew viewed with utter disdain. I, 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 I wasn't accurate enough or I wasn't precise enough last time I preached this. In my study for this message, I realized that being a tax collector is much worse than I thought. Being a tax collector is much, much worse than what you think. A tax collector was viewed as a traitor and a crook. Because he made his living by taking money from their own countrymen on behalf of Rome. Whom, remember, the Jews viewed Rome as a usurper, right? But they were, by physical force, compelled to submit. So on top of that, these tax collectors would con people out of more money that, that was required by the state to keep for themselves. They would have thugs. They would have hired muscle to threaten and and extort money out of common Jews for personal gain. There were two types of tax collectors. The Gabai, who were the general tax collectors. They collected property tax and income tax. Then there were the Mukis. Mukis, they collected duty on imports and exports. Anything that moved by road that was fair game. And within this category, the second category, there were, there were, there were great mokees and little mokees. The great mokees were behind the scenes. And they're the ones that had hired help to collect taxes. It's like a state farm agent who sits in the back office, right? And has his secretary deal with all the angry customers, right, Cliff? Or it's like... It's, you know, it's, it's like the general contractor who, who wears his white shirt on the job and he bosses around all the laborers and says, move that pile of wood over there, right? Matthew was no great Moki. He was the little one. And here's why being a tax collector is worse than you think. Because the little Mokis dealt with people face to face. They didn't have the luxury of anonymity. Behind the scenes. They were on the streets. Face to face. Therefore he was known. Publicly. Therefore he was also resented the most. 
That job cost him worship privileges in the temple and synagogue. He was viewed as spiritually more worse off than the, than the dirty Gentiles. So you see, being a tax collector just wasn't one of those things that you might find somebody falling into because there's nothing else to do. It wasn't, you know, like in our culture, you know, truthfully, you know, we may look at, you know, uh, garbage men and, and busboys as kind of like, eh, you know, they don't even have a high school diploma, so they're just washing dishes. Right? That's, that's just the truth it is, right? right? We, in our culture, we have, we have certain, certain uh, views on certain professions. So it's not like that, though. The, the, the lowest class in our, in, in our culture, they still have all the privileges you do. But, but to be a tax collector in this, in this time, you, you might as well be a gangbanger or, 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 or a functioning member of the mob. The Lord chooses a man like that. The election of Matthew would have bewildered everybody. But more than that, more than being surprised, whom might have a little stronger reaction? Whom? Pharisees, the religious elites. It's one thing to associate with a man like Levi at all, but it's another to bring this man into a discipleship relationship. Wow. This would have caused the religious people's blood to boil. But did Jesus care? Did he just care what these Pharisees thought? These legalists? Did he care? Not one bit. Because Jesus Christ disdained religious elitism with a passion, he goes after the simple and the sinful. Doesn't that blow your mind? That gives something to think about at least, right? So as we consider that, what, what kind of Levi man was, what kind of a man Levi was, according to his profession, I just want to remind you this morning about the danger of religious elitism because I think that hits home for all of us. First of all, who are the religious elite? Certainly they are the modern day pharisaical, ritualistic religions. I don't need to go deep in that. If you've heard me preach before, you know what I'm talking about. But there's much, much more to religious elitism than fancy robes, uh, external morality, and sacraments, right? Second of all, we should count all who cannot tolerate being called a sinner among the religious elite. Let me say that one more time. We should count all who refuse being called a sinner 
among the religious elite. All those who refuse to acknowledge themselves as poor, blind, and oppressed. All those who smugly, self-righteously say that they're good people. All those who are working their way to heaven. All those who believe they're saved by good deeds through ritual. All those who deny that they deserve to spend eternity in hell paying for their sin. That's the religious elite of our day. So unless you've seen yourself as wretched, naked, blind, helpless, under the bondage of iniquity, needing forgiveness and cleansing, Christ has counted He's counted you in that category. Every man, every woman must follow the example of Matthew and immediately surrender to Christ regardless of what the hypocrites will do or think. Like Levi, we all need to realize that our souls are starving and we need food from Christ. And like Levi, we need to drop our innate craving for self-made religion and depend on Christ alone. The eighth and final man in the second group called in a commission to preach the gospel is Thomas. Thomas is the fourth man in the second subgroup. He's commonly known as Doubting Thomas, right? But that, that may not be the best nickname for poor old Thomas. Because we see in Scripture that he was more of an Eeyore. You know, Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. He, he's, he's more than an Eeyore than a rationalistic, deistic, naturalistic skeptic. John 11, so if you want to flip over to John 11, we see a brief statement made by Thomas which indicates what type of man he was. And like the other men, we can learn from it. The background and setting of John 11 is important to understand. John 10 concludes Jesus doing ministry in the desert. He and his disciples have fled into the wilderness because they are uh, seeing increased hostility and opposition from the religious elite of Jerusalem. And while there, John 11.3 reveals that messengers were dispatched to bring urgent news to Jesus. You guys track with me so far? These messengers say, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, that's an interesting statement, right? He whom you love. Who's that? That's Lazarus, remember? Lazarus from Bethany, the brother of Mary and Martha. Jesus had formed a very close, tight-knit relationship with this family because he stayed with them. They housed him. They... They fed him. They took care of him while he stayed with them. And so the sisters obviously felt that Jesus would be willing to help them. Man, what a privilege. Can you imagine? Someone's sick in your house and you just fetch them to go get Jesus. Took advantage of that. And Jesus did help, didn't he? <laughs> he helped in a pretty explosive way. John, John uh, in verse 44 
It says that Lazarus walked out of the tomb after being dead for four days. Miraculous events, right? But what we need to focus on is Thomas's response. Look at his response in John 11, verse 16. After Jesus is determined to go to Bethany to serve Lazarus, Thomas says, let us also go so that we may die with him. Why would he say that? It's because in his mind, going to Bethany is a suicide mission. You see, Bethany was just just a little outside of Jerusalem. It was on the outskirts of Jerusalem. So if, if they had to flee Jerusalem to escape persecution... The disciples were worried that if they, if they go to Bethany, they're going to be seen there. And if, and if they're seen in Bethany, they're going to get arrested and they're going to get executed. So in a classic Eeyore fashion, Thomas says, okay, let's just go die with him. Instead of something like, okay, Lord, I know you're in control. Let's, let's go do this. You're right. We need to go help this brother. Everything will happen according to your will forward march. No, he doesn't say that. He says, oh, well, time to walk into death. Nice knowing you, Jesus. That was Thomas's weakness. But at the same time, even in his highly pessimistic, Eeyore-like attitude, he displayed loyalty and courage. Why? Because he didn't run. He didn't jet. He didn't bail on Jesus. Even though he really thought that he might find himself on a cross. So we have to give him credit for that, right? And, 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 and we need to learn from that aspect as well. When, when Jesus calls us to do something, don't act like Eeyore. When Jesus calls you to go preach the gospel, don't go, all right, nothing's going to happen, but I'll do it. That's simple thinking. We need to remember who Christ is, that he is Lord, head of the church, sovereign king. And we, we need to obey him and trust him, carry out our orders. What's our orders? Preach the gospel. Make disciples. Make disciples. That's why we're here. Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, they were all fallible men like us, but they were called and commissioned to preach the gospel. And I may sound like a broken record here, but as the old adage goes, repetition is the mother of all learning, right? The common theme I hope you're beginning to see is that these men were ordinary, unimpressive, simple, blue-collar, uneducated, average, sinful men. 
whom God transformed into his mouthpieces. Now that should be encouraging. That, 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 should, that should put some fuel in your tank this morning because knowing that God doesn't change, his directive to us does not change. If you call yourself a disciple of Christ, then you share the same responsibility these 12 men did. I share the same responsibility. I'm a pastor, but I'm first a Christian. I'm a member of this body like you. I just function differently. So, so I, 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 need, I need to recommit. I need to renew my zeal in this area too. So I'm going to do my best to lead you in that. We, we, our church needs to improve in this area. We need to be stronger, more consistent, gospel preachers. All the time. We are saved to play a role in God's redemptive plan. Do you know that? Your role in God's redemptive plan. In this point in history, you are made to play a role. That role primarily entails preaching the gospel. But if you're going to do that, you need to be equipped. Need to be encouraged, admonished, edified. And where does that take place? Right here. It takes all of us to do it. It takes all of us. It takes the feet, the hands, the arm. And it's all so that we may be equipped to do ministry. That is what you should be living for. Father, thank you so much for, the, for your word. Thank you for this clear direction. May we not be consumed with numbers. May we not be concerned with entertainment. May we not be concerned with trivial things and temporal things primarily. Father, re- renew a, a fire in us for the Great Commission and for the main thing. Because when we see that our main thing is to preach, our main thing is to make disciples, to serve in the church so that we may be equipped and edified and encouraged and and strengthened to do this. We, We don't have to just sit at home and wonder, what am I doing here? Because we know. We are your subjects. We are your servants, your your ambassadors, your heralds. So please help us, Lord, to do that by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.